I'm thrilled to share an adventurous conversation with Dan Roberts in today's show. Dan is an accomplished explorer and avid athlete pursuing astonishing accomplishments. And in our lively chat, he shares his contagious enthusiasm for travel and boldly seizing opportunities. You'll hear how reading on the road as a teen sparked Dan's intrepid attitude, propelling him to solo backpacking adventures worldwide. And this instilled a lifelong adventurous mindset. Learn how Dan transitioned from tennis coaching at 16 into a prolific 30-year coaching career across fitness, film and more. And he now runs retreats and works with elite athletes and actors. Dan believes being proactive means confidently taking action and getting out of your comfort zone. He explains why having a coach signifies a proactive mindset. Yet ego often prevents people from utilising coaches. I hope you enjoy this uplifting episode about living life as a bold adventure with Dan Roberts. Please subscribe to The Art of Living Proactively on your favourite podcast platform or on YouTube. Leave us a sparkling five-star review and share this episode with friends. Welcome to The Art of Living Proactively. My guest today, Dan Roberts. How are you doing, Dan? I'm doing great. How are you, Tony? I'm pretty good. And We're back in the UK today. Recently, a lot of my guests have been in the States, but we're in Surrey today. We are. Leafy Surrey. Very domesticated. <laughs> have you always lived around there? No, I'm from Manchester. Uh, I've travelled around okay. a bit and uh, getting in my late 40s now. And like everybody, I end up moving out to the country. And it's as far as I can handle. Because I was still in London for years. And, uh, this is about as far out of London as I can manage before I go mad. So that's we chose Surrey. You don't have any Mancunian accent. Oh, I've moved around a lot. I've lived in lots of different... I've right. lived in America, Australia, Asia. I've lived all over the place. So over the years, it's been pushed out of me. So yeah, I still say grass and master. That's very Mancunian. But yeah, apart from well, that... And I know what you mean, because I lived abroad for 12 years. Yeah. And in that 12 years, I had to get rid of my London accent because people couldn't understand what I was saying. So I had to teach myself to speak slowly and clearly and so on. But when I went back to London, yeah, then it came back again. Yeah, when I go back up north, it takes me like two days, then it'll come right. back again. But I went to university down south and no one can understand what I said. So I made a really conscious effort to slow down, to not swear so much, <laughs> to speak more clearly. And just over the years, just by hanging out in the south and not going back home that much, so it slowly went kind of more neutral, which I guess I am today. But yeah, I haven't really thought about it that much. <laughs> you just mentioned that you've, you've lived in quite a few places. Mm. And was that in connection? Because I know that you're, you're a trainer and as you mentioned, you've been a coach for a long time. Is that what you're doing when you were traveling abroad? Uh, yeah, I started coaching when I was 16, which is 30, just over 30 years ago. So it's been a long time. And I, yeah, I traveled with my work. I went to different countries and set up base there and I was coaching and then I get bored and moved to a different country. So pretty much it was related to work. Now, if I'm honest, it wasn't like my career led me there. It's like I wanted to go abroad and I had a skill and my kind of career developed. Right. But yeah, it's nice to see the world when you can. If you're lucky enough to see the world, I think we should. Absolutely. Couldn't agree with you more. So how did you manage to start coaching at 16? I was a tennis coach. I was okay. good at tennis. That helps. <laughs> I was good at tennis and I, I just did some qualifications. I was always a person, I was like major, oh God, as long as back as I remember, 
I was always one people used to go to to ask advice. Like even at school, people would always ask me advice about stuff. Not that I'd give good advice, but I was just one of those people who liked, I liked hanging out with people and I liked giving advice, I guess. So when I, I was pretty good at tennis when I was younger and I just decided to do some courses and work at my local tennis club to do coaching. And um, just because I like the idea of hanging out with people, talking with people, teaching, it always appealed to me at that young age. And I'm a much better coach than I am an athlete. So it worked out well. <laughs> and there you go. My kind of evolved. I'm into fitness. So my career quickly changed yeah. to fitness in my early 20s. But uh, it's still the same stuff. Hanging out with people, giving advice, essentially. Not having a proper job. Right. So you've all, your main income, you've always been a coach? Yeah. Yeah. I run three different companies now, all related to coaching. But my... I'm essentially a fitness instructor, but I sell programs, do retreats, do consulting and all the other stuff people do. But essentially, I'm a coach. So I make my money via giving people advice, but it's just different kind of forms of doing it. So what is your, what do you prefer to do? What is your preferred, what are you, happy, what are you happiest doing? I love what I'm doing now. I like the variety. I never stopped one-to-one. One-to-one coaching, I guess, is my favorite thing. I think I've done, I worked it out a couple of years ago. When I worked it out, I was on like 31, I think it was 31,000 hours. So I must be on like 33, 34,000 hours of one-to-one -one coaching. So I wouldn't have got that right. far if I didn't enjoy it. So that has to be my first love. But I think if I only did one-to-one, -one, I think I would have been bored by the time I hit 35 or something. I think having, building, having employees and building up brands and writing programs, writing qualifications, going on retreats, and build a brand as it were has been quite exciting and now I do quite a few things in my day I don't just do one-to-one -one coaching and I think that keeps me stimulated and it keeps things interesting and it means I don't get bored because that's like the worst feeling for me being bored what are the differences between coaching mentoring and consulting really good question and I think I don't know if there's a right answer to this everyone's got a different take but in my view mentoring is when you've been there and done that. Like I do, for example, I mentor a lot of businesses like gyms and coaches who want to build their brand. And I work as a business mentor. When I do that, I give them advice and I share from my own experience. So it's been there, done that. So I was like, oh, don't do this because I, I know what it's like. So you hold them accountable and you, yeah, you hold them accountable, which I guess you do in coaching too. But I think it comes from a place where you really have been there and done it before. In coaching, I think it's actually less about your knowledge and more about actually the way you communicate and the way you hold people accountable. I think obviously it would help if you have a background of knowing your stuff. But I do think the best coaches aren't necessarily the best experts. Um, there's a lot of people with PhDs in kinesiology who aren't very good coaches. It's, it's, I think actually being able to communicate, break things down, have empathy and leadership. In coaching is about that balance of empathy and leadership. And if you do that well, you're a great coach. And consulting is just when people pay you to find a solution to something, whatever it may be. So when I consult with, I have two different consulting sort of roles, as it were. I work a lot on films, on Hollywood films. And then it's a very specific problem in terms of the cast needs to look a certain way or the, there needs to be a certain amount of performance. And I advise about that. Or I work for hotels and they pay me to basically come in and look after their well-being strategy. So the Four Seasons or Shangri-La will ask me and my company to come in and overview, change the way they do well-being. So we'll look at their food menu, their running club, their gym layout, all that stuff. So it's a very specific problem and 
they'll, I don't know, it might be a contract of three months and they pay my company to create a solution. And then I go, there's no ongoing stuff where coaching is very much ongoing. And, and do you have a preference whether it's face-to-face or remote? Originally, I always preferred face-to-face, but like a lot of people, I was like, I had to pivot during the pandemic and suddenly I wasn't, like my entire 90% of my business was face-to-face before the pandemic. Now, as I speak right now, it's 90% online. So completely shift and I quite like it. I quite like the, I quite like the online stuff now. Maybe because it's still novel. It's only been a few years, but I see private clients over Zoom. We, yeah, a lot of the consulting I do now is over Zoom and over phone calls. And maybe I'm just getting old and I quite working from home, but I like it at the moment. But I think maybe in another year, I'll probably go back and do a bit more work in London. It's nice to, it's nice sometimes not to have a complete plan and to see what happens in work. Anna, what do you think? What do you like? Like you, before the pandemic, all of my work was face-to-face, 100%. Mm-hmm. I had to pivot like many other people did. And now I'm the opposite. Now 100% of my work is, is online. And do you like it but more? I want to go back. Oh. I want to go back to face. I mean, I like doing the online stuff, but I, I prefer the face-to-face stuff. But I haven't made as much effort as I should have to go back to doing face-to-face stuff. Well, it's quite easy to be online. So that's the problem. <laughs> it's quite easy. Like in terms of like yeah. scheduling, like clients and stuff, you can do a lot when people come to yeah. you. But I have found that I have to work harder to build rapport. And normally like I, I, one of my biggest strengths is I can get on with people very quickly. And I find like face-to-face normally in 20 seconds, 30 seconds, I know I'm set. Online it takes me like 20 minutes. <laughs> but I'm better than I used to be. But it's, uh, it's still... I think when you're with people, you can pick up on body language and things a bit better, maybe. Yeah. And that was, I was just thinking about what would you say are the pros and cons of, of both, for face-to-face and online? For who? For the client or for, the, for someone like both. me? For both. From, from your point of view and from the client's point of view? Well, from the client's point of view, which I guess is the most important, the convenience of, of being able to see me wherever they are in the world is really handy because my clients tend to travel around a bit. So the ones who like it, love it. And the ones who don't like it, I don't see because they really don't like it. <laughs> That's where it's gone. In terms of me, the benefits are definitely in terms of actually scheduling. Like I can, because I've got, because I'm just, let's take the online business, like the online, like personal training side of things. I have far more people who want to work with me than I have space for. So I can plan out my days, I can see someone at 6 a.m., 7.30, 9. And this morning I saw someone from Indonesia, then America, Australia, like all over the world. Because I know quite a lot of people, it's like I'm always booked up. And it's, it, that's quite nice. And it's a lot easier. Where in London, it takes, if I went back to London now, it would take me about six months to get that kind of back-to-back appointments. And then if a couple of people leave, it takes another few weeks to get that back. So there's always a bit of, it's never perfectly like fully booked. I always have to work a little bit harder, but online it's easy. So yeah, yeah it's definitely more convenient. So maybe I'm just being a bit lazy because I'm like <laughs> I'm just hanging out online a lot because it's definitely easier for me. And the clients said the clients who like it love it. So, but it's not for everyone. Yeah. And so in terms of the, you mentioned there like personal training, and I know you, you you've talked about some other types of coaching that you do as well. Do you have a preference for any sort of particular type of coaching you do? Um, my job is quite varied. My private clients 
you know, I see a handful of private clients, I guess, looking after them. But when I, the people I tend to work with, they tend to be on a project basis. So they have to get results, like usually in six months or a year. So normally my client, their career is slightly based on their body. So be they an athlete, a model, an actor, they're the three kind of sets of people I work with. It's usually pretty important that they make changes. Right. Being in charge of that is, is an honor, it's a privilege, and it's a responsibility. So I like that. I like when you're working with an athlete and they're injured, they've got, I don't know, you're doing ACL recovery and they've got to get back and compete in six months' time. That's really cool. Or if you've got a, an actor, they're the star of a big film starting in six months and they have to put on size and they're tiny and they have to get big and you have to do it by a certain date. That's exciting. So I like it when there's a time pressure because then it focuses my mind, it focuses their mind and it feels like we're on a mission together and that's cool. So that's really exciting. I think it gets the best out of me as a coach. When I'm emotionally involved, I, it's quite a hard goal. So if you're working with someone, like you just mentioned, they've got a specific role and they maybe need to bulk up or whatever the case might be. Mm -hmm. So are you giving them a, like a workout plan as such and then holding them accountable? And where, how would it work with a situation? No, I like physically, that? I work with them. Like if it's so like back when I was doing face-to-face, -face, I'd be with them and I'd travel around with them. So I'd basically live with them, hang out with them and do the workout with them. When it's on online, I every time they go to the gym, I'll be with them on a Zoom call. Okay. So they don't do stuff by themselves because even though self-accountability is important and like for long-term, that's a really good strategy to have. But when the stakes are high and you have to get results, we can't leave anything to chance. So I need to be in control of what they're eating, what they're, when they're going to bed, when they, what time they wake up, what they train, all of it. When I'm in complete control, then they get the results. And that's what I'm paid for. What, what would you say is, I wonder if there is, what is the hardest part of coaching or, or is there no, nothing that's hard? It's a really good question. What's the hardest part of coaching? I don't think it, I don't think it is if you keep your, if you stay on the ball in terms of, particularly when you've been a coach for a long time, it's really important to remember that your client is the star, not you. And sometimes we get so obsessed with our own, like building our brands and building our companies and trying to get in magazines or whatever it be. And sometimes I try not to, but I've seen it where sometimes coaches forget that they're supposed to be supportive. They're not supposed to be well-known. They're not supposed to be Instagram stars. <laughs> it's like, I think the client is a star. And I think if you, as long as you remember that, that keeps you grounded. It keeps you rightly humble as we should be because they're the people paying us you know, and we're helping them. And, and then there's... And then there's no danger of getting ego involved and actually you're there for the right reasons and you're helping them. Technically, there's always things as you grow older as a coach, things you might do differently in terms of understanding how the body works or how the mind works. But I think as long as your intention is pure and you're like a nice person and you're kind and you're truly thinking about your clients, like best wishes, then even if you're not that skilled, it's still okay. It's no, you're still doing a nice job. So I think, yeah, sorry, it's a convoluted answer. I apologize. But I think as long as you... As long as you stay, remain clear, like what your role is to support your client or clients, then I think it's actually incredible. It's easy and it's fun. And actually, I think it's the best job in the world. I can't think of anything better than coaching people. As long as you like people, then it's fine. That's quite impressive. Yeah. Right yeah. <laughs> where, do, where do you think maybe coaches go wrong when they first come into the business? I don't think everyone gets into coaching for what I would say the right reasons are. It's a bit arrogant to say what's right and wrong, but I don't think, hmm. I know when I started, like I really wanted to help people. 
And it wasn't like I wanted to train celebrities or I didn't want to make that. That was irrelevant. It was like the, those things come in slightly, I guess, in terms of secondary goals. But I really wanted to make a difference to individuals who worked with me. And I do see sometimes with when I do lecturing, when I mentor younger coaches, that when I ask what their goals are, it's not always I want to be really good. Sometimes I want to be rich. I want to, be, I want to train Hollywood stars. I want to do this. That's all about you. Maybe you should focus about how, you can, how much you can offer, how you can serve. Because the more you can serve, the more value you can get and your career will naturally raise up. So I think people are a bit too switched on with like branding and marketing and success nowadays. And I'm not against all that stuff, but I, don't, I think sometimes coaches forget that like, the main role is, the main thing is to focus on their clients and to do a really good job and take pride in your work. And when you do that, mm. nice things tend to happen in careers. If you're kind and good at what you do, you tend to get talked about behind your back and nice things happen. And you can build a career very successfully without screwing people over, without being like a hardcore salesperson, just by doing your job properly. Uh, but it's not very sexy to tell people that they want, you know, they want to go viral immediately or they want to have something with their USPs. And it's like, yeah, I don't know. What do you think? Let me ask you, you've done this for a while, haven't you? In, in terms coaches. of what do I, where do people yeah, go wrong? Yeah, in terms of coaches. I would say I'm obviously much newer to the game than you are because my background was not as a coach. I was I did something quite different when I lived abroad. And just in case you're, you're probably wondering, what the hell was that then? So Waiting I was to a hear, DJ. yeah. What, what did you do? <laughs> I was a DJ. You're a DJ. You look a bit like Yeah, so I lived abroad as a DJ for many years. Yeah. Wow. So, so I'm much newer to coaching. I've been doing it five years or so, okay. really. So I would see, and, and obviously I know... A lot of coaches who are a similar boat to me have only been doing it for a couple of years, few years or whatever. I think one of the hardest things when you first start is not telling clients what to do and actually coaching them rather than telling them. Oh, yeah, like facilitating change rather than telling, yeah. But that comes with experience, so surely after you realise that it doesn't work when you tell people what to do. It's difficult at first to to stop yourself from doing that. Yeah, or when you go and you read a new book or you go on a new course and suddenly you change, you pivot the way you change. That that gets beaten out of you after about 10 years of coaching, (laughs) or maybe five years. (laughs) It gets easier. I think, like I said, as long as you look at, as long as you remember the clients are like the star and everything you're doing is to help your clients get better results, then everything you absorb in life the experiences, life experiences or books you read or whatever, they will help make you like a better mentor or a better coach. What are your thoughts on coaches who don't have a coach themselves? Do you mean not have any kind of coach or do you mean, yeah, I think it's odd. I think it's very strange uh, because if you believe in the coaching process and you believe like it makes sense to have someone to tell you stuff you don't know and maybe or at least hold you accountable, if you don't really believe in it, if you don't have any skin in the game and believe that makes sense, it seems a bit like lack of integrity to then offer it to other people. So I find it very bizarre. I guess that I'm a, essentially, I'm a strength and conditioning coach, personal trainer. I don't have a personal trainer working with me, but when I want to learn gymnastics, I go to a gymnastics coach. When I want to learn how to do Muay Thai, I go to a Muay Thai coach. So I have loads of coaches for things I want to learn. I don't have someone looking after my overall fitness, but I have specific people I would go to always I have to know my life because it's the quickest way of learning stuff it's by finding someone who knows more than you who can communicate and they can it saves you loads of time it, it to me it's like a no-brainer like every athlete out there has a coach it's, it's 
And I've being a coach for 30 years, I've seen how amazing results you can have when you have a good relationship with a client and you give good advice and you hold them accountable uh, and you push them, you, know, um, you kind of work with them, not just like pamper to them, but you like challenge them and push them. It's amazing what people can do. But yeah, no, I find it very strange. As I'm sure you do. I'm guessing you do too. That's why you asked that question. Yeah, yeah. I've, got, I've got a couple of coaches and I've had coaches for many years. And I guess one of the reasons for asking that is because one thing coming from the DJ world, and the DJ mindset is very different to many other industries. I don't know what the right word is, but DJs really rail against having a coach. You should be good enough. You should be able to do it. DJs don't have a mentor or a coach or they might have been a roadie for someone when they first started doing it. And then after that, you've got to do it on your own. I'm not saying, obviously, I'm generalizing. Yeah. Obviously, not everyone thinks like that. But you'd be amazed at how many do think Why do you think that is? Is it a co- is it because it's mainly like young guys? Bit, bit, I think that's e- part bit of, of it. ego, like they don't like admitting. Absolutely. You've got to have an ego to be a DJ. You've got to stand in front of thousands and of people. Everyone listen to me. There's got to be some kind of self-confidence in there, uh, which yeah. is linked to ego, particularly when you're younger, right? Yeah. But the problem with DJing is ego is imperative, as you said, because you're in front of that many people. But it can very easily get out of control. Yeah. And it often does. That's part of the fun, though, isn't it? <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> when you're young. <laughs> yeah. But you decided to be a DJ. It can, you when it goes. Right? So there must have been something which led you that path. Well, for me, it was different. I fell into it by accident. I was crazy about music as a kid. I was always buying records all the time. And one day I was doing a friend's party. I was like 14 or something. And the manager of the venue, it was upstairs in a function room in a pub. And the, the manager of the pub said, oh, how much do you charge? And I was like, a charge for what? He says, for DJ. And I said, I'm not a DJ. He said, well, what have you just been doing? And then so I fell into it. It wasn't something that I aspired to. I just loved music. Yeah. And then my whole thinking changed because then I thought, oh, wow, I'm a DJ. Yeah. Whereas before, I just loved music. Wow. What yeah. made you change from a DJ to doing what you're doing now? I still DJ. It's, it, I'll still be doing it when they're putting me under, probably, because I've, I've done it my whole life. But I'm getting a lot older now. It's not something I could can do for the rest of my life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, when I'm 80, I can't be DJ in, in, in parties. And I look a lot younger than I am. I'm 60 in a few weeks' time. So I You're what? now... I'm 60 in a few no. weeks' time. Yeah, I the, get that reaction all the time. crazy. Yeah. And so I guess one of the reasons why I started coaching is because I had so many people ask me, how is it you're able to, like, because I'm pretty fit and I do, I'm like way faster when I play football, I'm way faster than people 20 years younger than me. And so I often get people asking me about how is it I'm able to stay so, so healthy, fit, whatever the case may be. And so that's how I got into coaching in one way. But the bigger part really was a lot of my family died young. Like my brothers, my dad all died in their 50s. My mum went through a long time of sort of chronic illness and she wouldn't listen to changes in lifestyle or nutrition. She just trusted the doctors who never suggested changing nutrition or doing anything to, about her no. lifestyle. And so it was, those are the main reasons I got into it. Yeah, I was watching your video actually on your website. I'm sorry to hear about your mum, but it's like, it's, it's very powerful how these kind of horrible events really shape us. Now, I, my mum and dad passed away a couple of years ago from cancer, so I get it. And it's like, it's yeah. so frustrating at times. 
when you see how like how doctors are sort of one way and it's like there's so much information out there but and it was more than my mum had the white coat syndrome thing. She would only listen to someone who's got a white coat. Yeah. And it, it was a shame because she, yeah, last few years of her life weren't great. Yeah. I think culturally, maybe it's a slight age thing. Like nowadays, less, I think people are a little bit more, I don't know, a little bit more cynical about, I don't know, maybe they're not. I'm thinking like people I know my age wouldn't necessarily just automatically listen to one doctor. They'd always get a second opinion or explore alternatives. Um, Definitely my kind of group of friends anyway. It wouldn't, if an expert said something, it wouldn't be like, oh, okay then. Like, and I think there's more, slightly more critical thinking going on, maybe than 30 years ago. I don't know. Well, and that's what a, do you think? That's such a good, yeah, no, I agree. And it needs to be because, yeah, you can't just accept, just because one doctor says something, that doesn't necessarily mean it's right. Yeah. You have to get something. And science is always a little bit, slow to catch i mean i'm in my work in terms of particularly like the fitness training side of things i'm definitely like evidence-led but i'm not evidence-based so I, I look at science i look at the latest studies i try to keep up to date but i know for a fact that some things i'm doing haven't been studied yet so of course there's no evidence for it there's, there's always time to catch up it's, you know we don't need to find out that i don't know that vaping is bad for us do we to realize it's probably not a good idea to get into vaping now or whatever or there's all kind of things people do nowadays, which are obviously not good from, from toxin, toxins in our diet, all kinds of things, which seemed very like hippie, like centric stuff like 20 years ago now is considered like even organic, like organic food, like in the seventies, we'd be like, well, oh, that's weird. Now it's kind of weird not to eat organic. So yeah. I think people are getting more awake to looking after themselves. But maybe I'm in a bubble yeah. because I'm in southern England and stuff. But I, I do feel like it's changing a little bit. I think it is changing, but slowly. But yeah, it is changing, and hopefully, it will that, that change will continue. And I mean, what you just said, just saying about you know, there's some things that haven't been proven yet, and so on. I lived in the Far East for nearly ten years, mm -hmm. and people's approach to medicine and health is very different out there. So I yeah. I saw how their approach was and I, I think that definitely had an influence on me and there was many things that in the west we would say were not proven but they were working for everyone out there so they just did it they didn't care that the west didn't believe in some of those things well yeah chinese medicine is like a whole completely different system and even like i used to live in thailand uh, for a while and i remember having a headache and straight away like some local guy was like massaging my head it's like, this is what they do to get rid of headaches no one pops in your event Everyone just like head massage. I was like, why? Yeah, I wasn't used to that, but that's much better. And it's just, yeah. yeah, every different cultures, different parts of the world have different ways of dealing with things. Western, Western medicine, I'm a fan of, but it's, I think it's a bit, it's a bit naive to think that's the only thing, particularly because there's yeah. new stuff coming out all the time. Yeah. What are your thoughts on, yeah, the title of this podcast is about being proactive. Hmm. What are your thoughts on that? About being proactive. In the sense that I think it's very, in. I think life is more fun when you take confident and bold actions um, rather than letting things happen to you. I think sometimes life is tough, like you've dealt with loss and stuff. Like I think we all do at some point and deal with bad things happen in our lives. And sometimes shit happens, but we can, to a certain degree, control how we react to things in life and have a positive spin on stuff. And just in terms of like our careers, our love life, our social life, our kind of adventure, life is so much more fun when you just make decisions and take bold action, I suppose. And I've also found over the years that 
you can create a habit of being proactive and then it becomes just part of who you are and it's a lot easier. I think if you're stuck in a rut for 20 years, it's very scary, like going out of your comfort zone. But once you do it once, just like a little bit, and then you do something else, maybe a little bit more, before you know it, it's like life has opened up its beautiful opportunities to you. Yeah, I always encourage people to take control as much as they can and also get out of the comfort zone. It can be a bit scary when you're doing things which feel, well, which feel a bit sort of foreign to you, I guess, or is a fear of failure, which is a big thing, which holds people back. And it's such a shame because who cares? (laughs) If you try something, it doesn't work. At least you tried. You know what I mean? It's like I fail in my work. I fail constantly. Like in the pandemic, I have a few companies. The pandemic had to shut one. I had one of my companies as a retreat business that obviously did terribly in the pandemic. But I also had a business which did online like fitness training, which did really well. And it's like, it wasn't like I was happy or because how was the pandemic for you financially? I was like, something was good. Things were bad. It's like, it's just part of the adventure. You know what I mean? It's like, yeah. you know, there's always good and bad. There's always yin and yang to everything. So you might as well just take control as much as you can and try and enjoy the process of it all. It just occurred to me, as you were speaking, and I never thought about this way before, but if you if you have a coach, that signifies you've got a proactive attitude in, of course in it does. many ways. Because you, yeah. otherwise you wouldn't have a coach. Would you? It shows you're proactive. It also shows you've got a little bit of humility. Because if you're completely like overridden of ego, you won't like like a lot of like young alpha male type, they will never get a coach of like 25 year old guys would never get like a personal trainer because oh, I know what mm. I'm doing. And it's like, that's why most personal trainers work with women because there's less ego. Talk to most personal trainers, nearly all of them work with more women because it's easier because right. there's not, there's not a competitive element with guys. It tends to be not always, but there tends to be a bit more of, I know what I'm doing. And it's like, you have to look after mm. their ego, <laughs> which is like exhausting. No, I think it shows a bit of humility. It shows maturity, really like accepting and saying, I don't, I don't know about this particular subject, so I want to learn more. And it shows a bit of intelligence. It's a lot quicker to learn something of someone who's been there, done that. Like if you want to learn about something, you read a book or hire a coach, that makes much more sense than working out by yourself. And that's a very odd way of living to figure it all out by ourselves. When we've got all this amazing information out there, we've got people who've dedicated their careers to whatever, medicine or yoga or Pilates or dance or whatever there's so many experts out there why not you know, people who really love what they do and are passionate about it and spend hours and hours researching things why on earth wouldn't you use them to enrich your life it just seems it seems odd but i think most people look how many coaches there are there must there must be more of a general exception of coaches because there's more life coaches out there there's more business coaches out there there's more trainers out there and it is great as an industry like in the west particularly it is growing Massively compared yeah, to like huge. when I started 30 years ago, like you go to a park in central London, there was no personal trainer, like in a park. Now you go to any park in London, there's like 40 personal trainers there. There's gyms everywhere, you know, so it, and people have business mentors now. That's not that weird. There were 20 years ago, no one would have a business mentor. Now it's standard. Yeah. Yeah, so it's, yeah. I do think it's growing in an industry, which proves that actually people are more open to it, which is a good thing. Do you th- how do you think AI might impact things? It's a very specific question. I don't know. I don't know. I, I don't think, I think with AI and machine learning, when it comes to like when I've seen early AI and I've seen machine learning on apps, like fitness and wellbeing apps, it can do a better job than bad coaches, but nothing can be a good coach. A good coach who actually works with someone who actually really thinks about that person, I don't think can be beaten by any kind of technology. 
but someone who's a bit rubbish, they can be, I think a clever computer program can probably do more in terms of sending emails for accountability and all that stuff. But when you really, when you talk to someone who's like a coach and they know you and they pick up on your like body language and say, you okay, Tony, what's going on today? And like, they listen to you, that, that's invaluable. You know, and when, you know, when someone comes in a bit upset, do you push them hard? Do you, do you let them have a little cry? Do you go to stop the session, take them out of the coffee? It's very hard to have an algorithm to decide what to do. But when you're a human, we can pick up on these things. And with our life experience, we can kind of go, actually, I think the best thing to do in this situation is this, which may not be part of their program, but it's the right thing to do for that person. And I don't know how a computer program could ever do that. If someone's listening to this and maybe they don't have a coach and there's something they're considering and they're not quite sure how to go, go about it, what would you say, what should someone look for in a good coach? I'll preface that by saying, if you find someone who's a really good coach, regardless of what they're teaching, I think you should hire them, regardless. Because I think being around someone who's really knowledgeable and passionate and can communicate, which are the three things you need to coach. I mentioned earlier about having that balance of empathy and leadership as well. When you meet someone who has these characteristics and they, they talk about what they do with passion, you should be around that. Even if, you don't, even if they're teaching knitting and you don't care about knitting, it's important to be around like enthusiastic, like passionate people because that's how we should be, I think, in life. And sometimes life can get tough and it's important to remind yourself that it's like we need bits of joy, we need enthusiasm, we need... It's so easy to be cynical, particularly as you get older. Mm. And I think it's very... Well, at all ages now, it's easy to be cynical. And you, I think you need to do anything you can to fight against that and to remind yourself that life is fun, it's a big adventure, there's lots of amazing things to learn, lots of really fascinating people out there, and you want to be around those people. And it's also nice to learn new shit, whatever it may be, you know? Be it whatever, like gymnastics, or be it gymnastics, or kung fu, or tai chi, or pilates, or learning how to sing, learning how to dance, whatever, there's millions of things. I'm biased because I love the world of physical stuff. I have a belief that we are all designed to be athletes and life is more fun and more enriched and more natural and more authentic when we live closer to our athletic selves. So I think regardless of our age or disabilities, whatever, we should always strive to jump and twist and pull and punch and run and climb and all these things because that's how we're designed to be. We're not designed to be what both of us are doing now, sitting in front of a screen. It's unnatural. We're not designed to sit on chairs at a game, which both of us are doing now. Chairs, how long have they been around? 100 years? That's not natural. No wonder everyone in the West has got tight hip flexors and weak glutes. So we sit down all day. So I think the more, yeah, move back to our natural athletic self, the better. So I'm obviously biased towards that. But going back to your question, just find someone who's passionate and and has studied stuff. And just, even if they're not a proper coach, just ask to hang out with them. It's infectious. Have you written a book? Have I written a book? I'm writing one at the moment. (laughs) and I keep getting told off by my literary agent Dory she's lovely but it was supposed to be out two years ago and I didn't finish it so it was a bone of contention (laughs) so I'll let you know when it's out but no I actually I I try to give a lot of free resources away I mean like you're doing your podcast which by the way I was looking at how many episodes you've done I'm so impressed how consistent you've been it's so difficult (laughs) to do them all the way through Um, I, I have various resources and stuff I try and give away for free to help people um which is like the next best thing i guess but i'd love to write a book and i'm doing it i'm just right. i guess i'm just lazy 
because it should because it's not finished yet. And what are your thoughts on who is it aimed at? What will it be about? I'm, I'm not allowed to tell anyone, I'm afraid, because I've already got a publishing deal. And right. hopefully, it will be a it will be good. <laughs> but I'll be told off. They were. I'll let you know when that's out. Right. And I'm just setting myself up to failure. Okay. If I tell you exactly what it's about and it comes out and it's different, but my, my main thing is, I the reason I do what I do, not my private clients, yes, but also all the qualifications and the courses and the consulting and the retreats. It's just to help people connect their mind and body more. That's essentially what I do. It, it, on the outside, it looks like I give people these dramatic transformations, and that is a part of what I do. But that gets the people in. But what I really do, yes, I help people dramatically change their body for films and stuff. But inside of that, I help them like, really feel what it's like to be an athlete. And that's, what, that's the most fun part of what I do. Problem is, if I just said, hey, I'm just like a mind-body connection coach, I'd have no clients. It's, I, I have to like also help people change their body, get fit, lose weight, all that stuff. But that's their goal. But my goal is to help them connect their mind and body and we work together. And I'm very open about it when I meet them. I'm like, yeah, fine, I'll get you this. But also, if you work with me, I also want you to learn how to do a pull-up. I want you to learn how to you know, learn about proper eating. I want you to learn how to fight, like how to do Kung Fu or Muay Thai. Like it's my responsibility as a coach, not just to give you results. Because you don't always know what you want. My, my responsibility is give you results, part one, but also give you things which I think are good for you because I'm the expert. I've done this for 30 years. So and that's the deal I give to all my clients. And like, if you want that, then we'll work together. If not, then go with someone else. And that, that's how I do things nowadays. We talked about, I asked you about a book just now. So staying on the same topic, would you, is there a book you can think of that's moved you for any reason? Yeah, I can think very clearly. It's a bit cliched, but. I read this book when I was 16. Uh, it's Jack Kerouac book called On the Road. And it was a part of the beat generation. So, you know, Neil Cassidy, Lawrence Ferlinghetti, Alan Ginsberg, all those guys. Uh, for those listeners who don't know, there was like a bunch of writers in the sort of mid 40s to like late 50s in America. And they were the first people to really, one of the first people to really write about their own experience and to find out what truth is. Kind of a little bit existentialist in a way, but they're trying to figure out what's important in life. And they were, being young guys, decided it was about travel, sex, women, experimentation, religion, everything. Nowadays, quite basic, I guess. But back in the 50s, no one did that kind of stuff. No one traveled the world and experimented with drugs and sexuality and stuff. No one did that back then. You know, there were Buddhists. No one was Buddhist in 1948. People were Buddhists in the 70s. So it was really ahead of its time. Uh, this book on the road, the, its main character is basically about two best friends, um, Jack Kerouac, the author and Neil Cassidy, his best mate. And they just travel through America and they just, it's a conversation to have between them and it's about life and it's about travel. And he, the way he writes a bit like a, like a jazz pianist and it kind of flows. He wrote the whole book in like three days, apparently, just like, like a stream of consciousness. And when you read it at a certain age, both of us, particularly, you're too old to read it now. <laughs> you have to read it when you're young, when you're impressionable and when kind of that, you've got that beautiful that naivety when you're young, that anything's possible. So you read it when you're like 15 or 16, even maybe 20. And all you want to do is give up life and see the world and travel and read about Buddhas and try different things out. And I read that book and exactly what I did. And I was like, I want to travel and see the world. So when I was 17, yeah, I was 17, I backpacked around America by myself. And that, I did that for like four months. And that gave me so much confidence and it gave me so much joy that I... 
And I went to at least, I think it was like 45, 50 countries by the time I was 24, 25 by myself, um, just traveling around, like learning languages and doing different bits. And you know, that's why I wasn't, you know, I was coaching, but that wasn't really my life. I kind of was like a young hippie and that definitely affected how I look at life now, even. And I see life as an adventure and I see being proactive. I was proactive when I was young. I bought that one-way ticket to Lima. I bought that one-way ticket to Bangkok and with a little bit of money in my pocket and see what happened. And when you do shit like that and good stuff happens and adventures happen and good memories happen, it makes you do it again and again. So yeah, if you're young, listen to this, read On the Road. Um, and if you're old, try and remember what it's like to be young <laughs> and read it again. <laughs> That's my answer to you. <laughs> if people want to find out more about you, where would they go? They, I guess, like everyone else, I've got a website, uh, danrobertsgroup.com. If you head over there, I have all kinds of free resources. I've got a really interesting course I wrote about a year ago called High Performance Living, which is a 30-day online course completely for free. I think that's worth checking out because obviously we do slightly different things, but I think it's very aligned with the way you talk about, from what I've heard in your podcasts and reading your blogs, it's definitely aligned with what you talk about. So I think your listeners will probably uh, enjoy that. And I think it will resonate with that about how to look after your body and how to look after your mind. Right. So I think that's, yeah, I think that's worth checking out. I'll put your fun links yeah. to all of that in the show notes. Thanks buddy. Yeah. So anyone look, let me ask you, I, you've asked show. me questions. Let me ask you a question. So, with your work, what's your, with your podcast, you've done so many podcasts. Do you have a, did you have a clear plan at the start when you did your podcast or has it evolved? Hmm. Yeah, oh, it's evolved very much. Yeah. So tell me, what, what's so initially, the first hundred episodes, it was called Exceeding Expectations. Okay. And then it was, yeah, it was very different. I was talking to people who had the mindset of just loving to surprise people and give them far more than they thought they were going to get. <laughs> and so I spoke to many authors, speakers, just people I found who just love to to surprise people in a, in, a, in a really good way and just like over deliver to such an extent that it just amazed people. Mm. So that was the first 100 episodes. Yes. The next 25 episodes, I changed the name again. So then it, then it became sort of series two, I suppose. And then it was called Happiness Versus Flourishing. And you, you talked about Buddhism. I got quite into sort of stoicism. There's a lot of crossover between Buddhism and stoicism. And one of the things about stoicism, Aristotle and Socrates and, and many of the Stoics always use the word eudaimonia, which is like an ancient Greek word. And it's often badly translated as happiness into English. Mm. And it's not happiness at all. There isn't a word really you can translate it to, but flourishing is probably as close as it gets. Yeah. So I was actually looking at what, what is the difference between happiness and flourishing? And I was interviewing, I was having conversations with people around that kind of concept. So how would you define flourishing? That's the thing. Flourishing is something that you can be living a good life and you're happy. You're not happy all the time because that's ridiculous. No one's happy yeah. all the time. But you're enjoying life. You're trying new things. And you're, it's, as I say, it's close to eudaimonia. It's not quite the same. But it's not happiness. It's not just trying to be happy all the time because that's a pointless pursuit. Yeah, it's a very odd thing to strive for, happiness. It's just so many people say, I just want to be happy. It's like it's such an odd thing. You can't really grasp it. It just happens when you're doing something else, usually more meaningful. Or try that. It's like the Maslow's hierarchy needs when you try and aim for that self-actualization or you aim for flourishing or whatever. Like, 
being you know, fulfilling your potential, I guess, in some way in life. Uh, then you get all moments of happiness, which is nice. But it's yeah, I agree. It's a very odd thing to strive for. Yeah. So that was the series yeah. two. Series three was habits and health. Okay. And then series four just started a few months ago. Yeah. Yeah, of living proactively. And what do you think it's going to change again, or are we going to stick with this? Almost certainly. <laughs> Love it. Almost certainly. <laughs> I have no idea how it will change, but it will probably change at some point. I was, I was, I'll suddenly have a new inspiration i think oh okay maybe i could do that and a lot of the people i talk to it's just scratching my own itch it's people i find fascinating for some reason and i just think okay let me have a conversation with that person and and people seem to like listening to it yeah it's that i've got a podcast and it's quite nice it's like it gives me an excuse just to talk to people i want to talk to occasionally (laughs) i'm not like you i just do episodes every so often but we've got quite a lot of followers and just randomly if i've got someone i want to talk to i'll just contact them and it's like it's quite nice sometimes just to have a conversation but I, I don't do it properly like you do i do it like once or three four weeks just when i, I fancied having a chat with someone a bit like today <laughs> but now i'm very impressed how how regular you are it's so hard to be consistent in anything in life god it's really difficult so i'm yeah, i'm very impressed it's it's great work you're doing cheers much appreciated listen we're just about to finish Dan. but before we do so how we usually end is i always ask is there a quotation that resonates with you for any reason? Yeah. God, I think, I hope I'm not wrong. I think this is Voltaire. I may be wrong. The real voyage of discovery consists not in seeking new landscapes, but in having new eyes. Okay. And I like that, really self-explanatory, because it's about the way we see things. If you really want to have an adventure, yeah, you could get a one-way ticket to Lima. But actually, what's more adventurous is by opening your eyes and seeing the world in a new way by staying open-minded. Mm. That's the real adventure in life. That's why I like that Voltaire quote. Yeah, lovely quote. I haven't come across that one before, but yeah. That's, that's you can keep it. It reminds me of, sometimes you have a conversation with people and they'll talk to you about, especially, I've been to about 100 countries, similar to what you mm. were saying. I lived in countries. And the question I get asked so much, and I pro- you probably get asked the same thing, oh, what's your favourite country? And I... It's not, I always say, I can't really answer that because I love, there's probably 10 questions I could reel off that I absolutely love. But for me, it's not about the country. It's about the experience I was having with the people. And I could have had that same experience in a completely different country. And you can go back to the same country like three times. You can go with a partner, you can go with friends, you can go by yourself. Completely different experience. Absolutely. (laughs) No, you're right. It's a very, very odd question. But yeah, I get asked that a lot. So I'm pleased you get annoyed by it too. <laughs> all right, thank you for having me on. It's been a real pleasure. Nice chatting with you and good luck with all your endeavors. And the same to you. Tune in next week for another enlightening episode of The Art of Living Proactively. I'll be speaking with Vicky Jones, a breathing expert who is using her knowledge to help long COVID sufferers. Vicky will share her incredible story of recovering from breaking her neck while surfing. Only to later contract COVID-19, which left her with debilitating long-term symptoms. She'll explain how learning proper breathing techniques through the Oxygen Advantage program has been a lifesaver in managing her illness. Vicky is now paying it forward by teaching customized breathing exercises to others struggling with long COVID's myriad of symptoms. She'll provide powerful insights into taking control of your health when traditional medicine fails you. It's an inspirational tale of overcoming adversity with grit and determination. 
don't miss this breath of fresh air, be sure to subscribe, leave a review and share this podcast. And remember to leave your comments on our YouTube channel. Stay tuned for an uplifting conversation with the remarkable Vicky Jones. That's next week.